Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Odyssey celebrates Mother's Day. Brought to you by T-Mobile. You can count on T-Mobile to help you stay connected on America's largest 5G network. Welcome back to Total Information AM. Tom Ackerman taking some time off. I'm Megan Lynch. Plenty of news this week for our legal analyst, Brad Young. He's a partner with Harris Dow Fisher and Young. He joins us every Wednesday morning. Good morning, Brad. Good morning, Megan. Let's look at the Supreme Court first, because they are going to be hearing the Colorado case that involves former President Donald Trump and the 14th Amendment. This is a pretty obscure section. So tell us again what this all relates to. Well, under the 14th Amendment, Megan, Section 3, it's something that literally hasn't been used in a 100 years. It's not even taught in law schools. And yet under that 14th Amendment, Section 3, it specifies that uh, it gives a list of offices of the United States. It doesn't list the presidency, but it does say an officer of the United States, if they engage in insurrection, then they are ineligible for office. So at this point, the question becomes, what does that mean and how does it apply? And that's what's going to be the focus of uh, oral argument tomorrow in front of the Supreme Court is, does this provision apply to President Trump? Specifically, uh, does the presidency qualify as an officer of the United States? And if so, has President or former President Trump engaged in insurrection to the point or to the level where he can be barred? Because, as you know, under Colorado, the Colorado Supreme Court ruled that he, President, former President Trump, was ineligible to be on the ballot. And in Maine, the Secretary of State has reached that same determination. Other states have, have basically said, we're going to wait to see what the Supreme Court does here before we make a decision all of that begins tomorrow at the Supreme Court. And that comes at the same time that an appeals court uh, ruled yesterday a panel of three judges on his claims that he had immunity for his actions as president. Talk about the cases that that ruling impacts at this point. Well, that decision impacts former President Trump in many, many ways. His position has been that he enjoyed immunity as the president, uh, immunity from prosecution, immunity from civil liability uh, when he was acting as the president. And President Trump's position on this is January 6th, he was acting as the president of the United States. The lower court in that case, in the in the D.C. Circuit Court, found that Trump was not operating as the president. For example, if the president takes some action and then gets tries to be prosecuted for that, generally speaking, the president would be immune from civil and criminal liability. But the lower court in this case found that that uh, Trump's activities on January 6th 
we're more focused on staying in office, that being akin to uh, a re-election uh, uh, efforts as opposed to actions taken to fulfill the duties of the president. And because of that, the Court of Appeals now in, unanimously, I think it was uh, two Democrat appointees and one Republican appointee, but all three unanimously found that Trump does not have immunity from prosecution. Now, that doesn't determine whether he's guilty or innocent. It just determines whether the prosecution can go forward. One of the main arguments that the Trump legal team made was that all presidents need absolute immunity for actions or else they would be faced with prosecution the minute they leave office. For example, if they call for a strike on a country and and later that is determined to be a, a, a criminal act. How did the this hmm. panel specifically break down that part of the argument? Well, they broke down the argument, Megan, distinguishing between acts that are done to further the interests of the presidency as opposed to acts that are done to further the reelection campaign or the reelection efforts of the president. And so the court made a distinction, particularly the lower court, went to great lengths to 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 bifurcate is the word that's used to bifurcate those two interests, staying in office from fulfilling the duties of the office. And so uh, literally at the oral arguments for this case, Megan, uh, Trump's legal team made the argument that he could uh, use a Navy SEAL team to take out a political opponent and he would still be shielded from liability. And that was simply a bridge too far uh, for the Court of Appeals. What's next on the timeline and all this, both in this immunity debate and, and the criminal prosecutions? Well, it, the, the timeline and there's a lot of timelines here that are that are overlapping and very confusing. But let's just talk about this, because undoubtedly, President, former President Trump will be uh, will be filing an appeal of this. And right now, Justice Roberts is the one who determines, because the justices all do this on a rotating basis, whether to issue an immediate stay. You know, a stay means that that the the ruling from the Court of Appeals would not be implemented or enforced until the court decides whether they want to take it. And then the next step is whether or not the court will grant what's called certiorari. Uh, that's a decision by four of the justices to say, we actually want to hear this case. I don't know that that's a foregone conclusion in this particular instance. A stay probably is. But whether the court will actually hear the entire appeal is something that's yet to be seen. I want to turn now, Brad, to this case of the Michigan school shooter, Ethan Crumbly, and his parents. His mom yesterday was found guilty of four counts of involuntary manslaughter in that shooting spree. Four students killed, a number of them injured as well. That was back in 2021. This case is is pretty unique. Explain why that is. Well, Megan, this is the first time in history that I'm aware of where parents of a shooter have been prosecuted for involuntary manslaughter based upon the actions of their child. And so in this instance, we have Jennifer Crumbly, who was convicted this week of four counts of involuntary manslaughter because there were four students that were killed in the shooting that was perpetrated by her son. And and the, the legal precedent here is that Jennifer Crumbly had a duty under state law to prevent her son, who was 15 at the time, from preventing others. And the jury found that she failed in that duty. Again, this is the first time this has ever happened uh, that we are aware of. And she could serve up to 60 years in prison as a result of this conviction. 
Now, her husband goes to trial. Her case, his case rather, goes to trial on March 15, and evidence of Jennifer Crumbly's conviction will certainly be an issue uh, at the husband's trial because this would enable him to say, see, someone else has already been convicted of this crime, and it, we could conceivably see conflicting jury verdicts here uh, based upon uh, the, the trial of the husband. I was going to ask if his case was much different than hers. Are the charges fairly similar? Well, the charges are identical, but you have to remember here that the primary defense in any case of involuntary manslaughter is that the defendant says, I'm not responsible, it's someone else who is responsible. That's the primary defense to involuntary manslaughter. So in this case, Jennifer tried to argue that her husband was responsible for the training uh, of the son, and yet there was video admitted into evidence of the mother training the son how to shoot. Uh, and so that was the jury found that to be very compelling. The question is going to be uh, at the husband's trial whether or not uh, that video showing the mother training the son combined with her conviction on these charges, will persuade a jury to say that the husband is not responsible criminally. Now, it's not uncommon in these mass shootings at schools for the public to point the finger at at parents, you know, of the shooters in these cases. Do you think that now going forward, this sets a new legal standard for Hmm. examining that responsibility? Uh, I think you're exactly right, Megan, because this template now has been set that if if a child is involved in a mass shooting of any kind, and it could even go to not a mass shooting, it could go to conceivably even things such minor, such as a, a single shooting or an attempted shooting. But the parents can be held criminally liable. The laws in Wisconsin here are very, or Michigan are similar to most laws, even in Missouri and Illinois when it comes to this. So I do think this is a template for further action against parents when children are involved in criminal activity. KMOX legal analyst Brad Young, thank you so much. We'll talk to you next week. My pleasure. Odyssey celebrates Mother's Day, brought to you by T-Mobile. You can count on T-Mobile to help you stay connected on America's largest 5G network. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 